Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks, of course, to Brady and Diana for leading us in corporate worship. It is a gift to the body. What a powerful video that was from the voice of the martyrs. As we take time this month to remember and to reflect on and to engage with those who are persecuted around the world for their testimony. Even as we ourselves are not yet persecuted, we are called to lift up those who are. And as we look around our world, as we see the advancement of technology and the growth of supposed tolerance, it causes many to look upon the barbarism of the past and to be deceived into thinking that we are somehow progressing beyond the brutish days when Christians were fed to lions and other medieval acts were perpetrated against followers of Christ. It is one of the great deceptions of our day. As you can read about through the voice of the martyrs, there are more Christians killed in this century than all previous centuries. In fact, according to documented research, more than 70 million Christians have been martyred for their faith from Jesus' ascension until now. 70 million But lest we think this is something of the distant past, here are some notable examples. This is by no means exhausted from recent history. They include over 1,600,000 Christians who were massacred by Ottoman Muslims in Turkey and Armenia in the 1820s. Over 120,000 Greek Christians were killed by Turks in Smyrna in one day in 1922. Over 600,000 Sudanese Christians were murdered by their Islamic government in 1963. Over 1,200,000 Christians of the underground church died in the Soviet Union in 1925. Over 200,000 Ukrainian Orthodox believers were killed in Soviet Ukraine in 1927. Over 100,000 Lutheranian Christians killed first by the Nazis, then by the Soviets, all the way from the 1940s to the 1980s. Over 450,000 Yugoslav and Serbian Orthodox believers martyred by both Nazis and the Soviets up until the 1990s. I'm going to go on. Over 125,000 believers of the Lutheran Confessing Church and Catholics killed also by the Nazis between 1933 and 1945. Between 1950 and the year 2000, over 200,000 Christians were executed during the Korean War and by North Korean communists. In 1994, over 520,000 Christian Hutus and Tutsis killed each other in Rwanda's civil war. We remember over 300,000 Protestant evangelicals killed in Colombia's La Violenza Civil War from 1948 to 1958. The list truly goes on and on. And today we see continual raids of churches in certain states in India and countries in Africa. Pastors who are jailed and executed often very publicly to try and disperse their flock. Beloved, it's happening as we speak. This very day, this very moment, people are suffering and paying the highest price for their testimony. Yet today, as we consider that figure of 70 million, 70 million, there are two things we know. One, there are more to come. And two, that vengeance is the Lord's, he will repay. 
We read in Revelation 6 as the seals are being broken. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony with which they maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. This is the reality, dear saints. This is the cost of sin, of a fallen world, of having both physical and spiritual enemies of God that are loosed upon our earth. And this is why we labor and strain in our Christian walk to see with eternal eyes and to live holy lives. Well, for the next three weeks of November, we will join in prayer and solidarity of spirit with those under persecution. And we're going to be bringing you examples each week of the faithful that have gone before us as we consider how many believers will gather this month in a particular place, in a particular building, because of the ultimate seed that was planted. We are to stand with them in prayer. We are to thank the Lord for those who have gone before us, even as we gather in the freedom we currently enjoy. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we completed our three-part series titled, A Tree Lies, a Temple Dies. Such a remarkable dive into the well-known telling of not only the cursing of the fig tree, but the living parable that that tree represented concerning the state of worship in Israel. We discovered the incredible story of the temple, painting that painful picture of the cyclical state of worship in Israel. Throughout history, we saw that the condition of the temple worship as a continual outward manifestation of the inward condition, of the inward condition of this chosen nation. We reflected upon the very rising and falling of Israel, being tracked perfectly by the rise and fall of the temple. And that holds true. Why? Because a nation is defined by her worship, isn't it? America 2022 is defined by her worship, all the way down to our relationship with our spouse. That's defined by our worship. And it is upon this worship that we will rise or fall, individually or corporately. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Entering the temple in the court of the Gentiles on Tuesday of Passion Week, we witnessed a miracle of sorts as Jesus cleared over 13 acres Ten football fields worth of stalls, of people, of animals, of money changers. In a scene with sights and sounds and smells that are difficult to truly imagine, we witnessed as prophesied the zeal Jesus had for his father's house. Knowing that we are in the last days of our Lord's life, Jesus, knowing he's in the last days of his earthly ministry, keeps the main things the main things. 
Now, Jesus was always on message and on duty for the Father, but knowing that time is short, Jesus des- desires to, to crystallize and to reemphasize what is really important. And the first of that being what? Truth and worship. Those who worship me must worship in spirit and in truth. I'm leaving you soon. And this false worship, this false Judaism that you've been raised on and are surrounded by and that saturates this entire culture, it's false. It's full of hypocrisy and the end is going to be destruction. So what is, the prior- so what is priority one that Jesus wants to drive home in his last week? Worship. Worship. And today we're going to see our second priority, prayer. Prayer. Not only has Jesus primed the pump already by teaching last week that my house shall be a house of prayer, but here we're going to go deeper. And Jesus is going to explain why. We have so much to see, beloved, so with that, let's dive into our text this morning. Mark 11, 22 through 25. That's Mark 11, 22 through 25. And Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. For this reason I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Well, if you look to your own Bible here, some of you may notice a verse 26 that has brackets around it. Now, we've not included this text to be preached as we don't find this verse in Mark's earliest manuscripts. It's possible a scribe added this for any number of reasons. Now, it's not that the statement in verse 26 is not scriptural truth. Of course it is. But it's pulled from Matthew. However, it's not contained here in the earliest writings. But I want to just make a side note on this, if I may. Do not be bothered by such texts. Rejoice that we have bracketed verses. You know why? Because we know enough about the preservation of God's word and have enough manuscript evidence because of God's faithfulness to preserve his words that translators are able to use these brackets. If we didn't have the earliest evidences, we would have no need of brackets. But we do have it. And thus we're able to use them. Brackets do not sow doubt in the word. They stand as a testimony to the very truth of God's kept and preserved word. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we approach this text, Lord, this is a difficult text. Lord, the truths that are to be gleaned and mined from this are going to fall difficultly on our ears this morning. We pray that you would till the fallow ground. We pray that the seeds that are planted would bring forth fruit. We pray that we have eyes to see and ears to hear. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would wield the arrow, that it would find its mark as always. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, anyone who's a history buff or likes to watch old war documentaries like I really do might recall harrowing videos from World War II. 
of maybe bombers either over Germany or over other, or other fronts during that time. Now, being the allies up in the aircraft, we knew that we were right on target with our bombers and our fighters by our instrumentation and by our guidance. But you see, the enemy was always so kind to confirm that we were over the right target by sending up anti-aircraft fire. Known as flak, this would be fired by the enemy at aircraft when you were over the target or approaching a protected zone. Now, as believers, we have an enemy as well. The enemy of Christ, Satan and his hordes also deploy resources in their attack. They send up flak of deception and false teaching over critical areas to defend when you're getting too close. Meaning, beloved, if you want to know where the battle is, look for the flak. If you want to know where the goods are, if you're over the target, where is the enemy trying to deceive? Well, here in our text today, we have heard a number of verses that are some of the most commonly used verses in false teaching today. And it surrounds the issue of prayer. It surrounds the issue of the spoken word, the power contained in the spoken word, and the issue of faith. These are verses that have been perverted and twisted, meaning that great amounts of flack have been deployed by the enemy over this area of prayer and its interaction with faith and with the spoken word. Now, most of you would know this error as word of faith theology. The teaching that faith is somehow something of a force that is to be wielded by the believer. And by wielding this, for, this force of faith and prayer, we can name and claim all manner of health and wealth. That we can cause all manner of blessing to come upon us if we have enough faith. And if we know how to exercise it properly. And of course, in this errant teaching, it is also taught that to be sick or to be poor is to lack the proper faith. You told that mountain to move, and it did not move. So you lack the proper faith. Now, this teaching was once very easy to spot in high-profile people like Benny Hinn and Creflo Dollar, T.D. Jakes, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, and the like. But heresy is a shapeshifter. Much like the political left, once certain taglines or labels become well-known and get a, a bad reputation with them, they simply change the label and the packaging. And today, this teaching is pervasive throughout modern evangelicalism with many more disciples and teachers, but it's been repackaged. It's been reworded and softened and changed slightly to make it more palatable for consumption. The enemy has committed an exceptional amount of resources to twist the scriptures we have before us today. He has sent up vast amounts of anti-aircraft fire confirming with us, for us, that we are right on target. But beloved, we do not need the presence of anti-aircraft fire exploding around us in false teaching to tell us that. Why? Because we have our instruments. We have our guide. And the coordinates in scripture are crystal clear. Satan's attacks in these areas only confirm what we already know. This is so very telling for our age and for our time. And those who follow the modern church and the different movements. What is the other number one area where we find the enemy sending up flack? 
What instrument is he using to deceive and to introduce false teaching and false doctrine? What industry, if we can call it that, has been the source of the most heretical movements of our day? Worship. Music. Some of our biggest players in that movement today, Bethel Church, Jesus Culture, Elevation Worship, Hillsong, all purveyors of numerous strains of false teaching. Satan has committed vast anti-aircraft fire here, which is quite amazing. Why? What two things has Jesus focused on thus far here in our last days? First worship, now prayer, and faith. Boy, is Jesus right on target. He is right over the enemy camp. What Jesus says matters most is where the fight is going to be. So we need to get it right, beloved. It is our joy and our duty as believers to read the manual, to input the correct coordinates, to be discerning lovers of truth. So with that, let's dive into our first verse this morning. Verse 22. Verse 22. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. Now, we really need a few verses previous, of previous context here to kind of bring this statement into focus. As verse 22 is a response of Jesus to Peter from last week. Now, what has just been said in verse 20 and 21 before? As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Now, here's why we need that context. It is not because our text today is an answer to Peter's question or his observation. It's the opposite. Jesus offers no real explanation to the cursing of the fig tree. He bypasses their wonderment and proceeds to teach what matters, what's important. The lesson of the fig tree at this point was only partially known, right? Understanding about the fidelity and worship that the disciples needed to learn and to grasp, that's been accomplished. But the death of it, the death of the fig tree, the meaning and the fulfillment, the prophetic foretelling of the death being the destruction of the temple, right? That it's dead, it's going to be cut down, it's going to be destroyed. Jesus explains none of that here. Only later will that be understood by subsequent generations. So we look at the context, not to see Jesus' answer to Peter, but to see Jesus moving past it, which shows us the motive and the focus and the heart of what Jesus says is important right now. Here's what we need to talk about. And what is it? Prayer and faith. And so Jesus says, what? Have faith in God. Now, it seems like a very basic statement. But, oh, beloved, does our English fail us in tremendous, epic proportions here. I'm actually a little disappointed the LSB did not capture this. I'll just send MacArthur a note. To read this in our language, the entire context is immediately framed that we're talking about our faith extended toward God or our faith extended toward a situation. That's how we read it. Because that's how it appears that what it says. But this is the birth and the genesis and the seed of the faulty theology that spawns from these verses. Right away we're contextualized as a series of verses that are talking about my faith extended toward God. 
However, that is not the correct rendering of this verse, and we need to grab hold of this because it changes everything. As we dive into our verses here, we're going to address these issues not only as it relates to faith, but as it relates to our spoken word and to our prayer. We're definitely going to slay some sacred cows today. Verse 22. So dealing with the first issue of faith, verse 22 is much better rendered, have the faith of God. Theologian F.B. Meyer, he, he catches this critical nuance in his writing. And in it, he remembered his first encounter with famed missionary Hudson Taylor. Many of you know that name. Hudson Taylor was coming to preach for F.B. Meyer that day, and it was this verse in Mark that Hudson would be preaching from. And he recalled his conversation with Taylor about this verse. And he told him that this verse was to be interpreted as dealing with God's faith to us rather than our faith to him. Thus, in Hudson's words, we are to, quote, reckon on God's faithfulness. Do we see the incredible distinction here? Have the faith of God. Whose faith are we talking about in Jesus' words here? It's God's faith. Wrap our minds around this. And beloved, this is going to take some deprogramming for some because of errant teaching that's out there. In fact, we could do a small exercise out there to find out if, if you've been influenced by word of faith teaching or name and claim it theology. I'm going to make a statement. And if this is you, it's going to sound very, very strange, even wrong in your ears. What is your reaction to the following statement? There is no power in your faith. Say what? I've got a million songs that talk about the power of faith. I've got a t-shirt that says there's power in faith. Pastor's gone off the deep end. Of course there's power in faith. Faith is powerful. No, it's not. There is no power in your faith. There is no mystical power contained in belief. There is not a force that is contained in your belief or in your words. There is no power in faith alone. So where does the power come from? I mean, we've got mountains moving in our text, do we not? It is the object of our faith that contains the power. It is God's faith that has power. You cannot move a mountain. God can. That's why we must understand this rightly. When we understand that we are talking about God's faith extended toward us and that our belief, our faith in the power of God, and in this is our ability to focus. This is what we see. We see that the power lies with him. And that our faith by itself is not capable of accomplishing a single thing. Adrian Rogers once opined, quote, Faith must have the right object before it can be real faith. Sometimes people say, just have faith. Only believe. Whenever a person says that to me, just have faith, the first question in my mind is, faith in what? They say, only believe. I ask, only believe what? Beloved, we are not making a distinction without a difference here. It is by missing the intent of Jesus' words and reading into this verse the supposed power of our faith to do these things that spawns such heretical teaching. The topic at hand here, the intent of Jesus' words here, is not our faith. Our faith does not have any power. 
The topic here is the faith of God extended toward us that we believe and stand on. You can't move a mountain. Your faith can't move a mountain, but God's can. And we grasp this. This is hard. This is going to require some serious thought reorientation for some. Say, how was church today? Well, pastor told me my faith has no power. It was a rough day. But it turns out that this is really, really good news. If it's not your faith we are even talking about, who is it that we are depending on to perform his word and to come through? Is it dependent upon a Herculean effort of faith from a fallible person? What if their faith was weak that day? What if they're a new believer with only a little and a budding faith? What if you're Peter that day looking at the waves crashing around you as you step out? Then what? Do you fail? Now you're sick and you're poor because your faith wasn't enough? Something could have come to pass if you had only had the faith to believe for it, but sorry, not now? No. Because your faith alone has no power. We are depending upon God to perform his word. We are depending on God's faith to move that mountain if he so chooses and in accordance with his will. He extends his faith toward us, which contains all power and all ability. And we embrace that faith and we walk in it and we stand in it and we proclaim it. And we can do it with all surety because it is not our frailty or ability that is the source of our confidence. It's God Almighty. Get this oriented in our minds and our hearts and you will be free of many burdens. Free of works righteousness. Freed of a faith that you were told failed to perform. Freed from the condemnation that your faith is too small. Perhaps hearing our faith has no power is the best news you could have heard today. If it's not me, it's him. And that is good news. Now do you believe that a mountain can be moved? Now do you believe that what you pray and ask for you will receive? If we get this principle, we can stand up and shout yes and believe it in the depths of our bowels because the focus is off of our faith and onto his. I hope this sets some people free. I pray this ignites your faith as we see it rightly. The source of it, the focus of it. And Jesus answered to them, have faith in God, or rather, have the faith of God. Reckon on God's faithfulness. The takeaway, my faith is utterly powerless, and that is really good news. It is the faith of God that accomplishes and performs. We embrace it, we walk in it, we stand in it, we proclaim it, and the Lord's will is accomplished. Not out of the deep well of our amazing faith, but in the faith of God. So if you're having a rough day, don't even feel like you could even muster up that mustard seed of faith. There's great hope in that very moment. There's a truth that will cause you to rally the troops of your inner man. It's God's faith that is extended to us. That he will perform his will. Beloved, we don't place our faith in faith. We place our faith in God. How precious is this truth and promise on hard days we all experience. When we know we miss the mark. 
when we feel like our faith fell short. This is water for a weary soul. It's God's faithfulness. And now, because of God's faith, extended and gifted toward us. What? Verse 23. Verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Beloved, do we see how critical this is to have our theology right when approaching these texts? It is so incredibly easy to get taken off course, applying a truth or applying an attribute to ourselves that was meant for God, ascribing power to the wrong place and thus missing the true power. Now, while we first dealt with the issue of faith, here we're tasked with a similar issue that revolves around the spoken word. Say to that mountain. Now, there are swaths of false teachers out there, part of the word faith, name it and claim it, that teach that we have power in our words, that you have creative power in your tongue. As we read this verse, our text here seems to beg the question, is there any inherent power in our words? Just like faith. The answer is no. But it says, speak to that mountain. My words must have power. Same principle as faith here. Your words carry the same amount of power that your faith does. None. There is no supernatural endowing of power to your words. Say, brother, scripture says that I have the power of life and death in my tongue. Indeed, it does. And the writer of that proverb is conveying that you either have the ability to build someone up with your words or tear them down with your words. You can bring them water and life or poison and death with your tongue. It does not mean that they contain any supernatural or creative powers. I sure hope I'm stepping on some spiritual pride this morning. We keep listening to this kind of preaching and all of a sudden we start to become very small in the whole realm of our Christian walk. And we don't like that. We do so love the credit for things. Sorry, it's all of God. It always has been. Start to finish. It didn't start with us. It won't finish with us. God's will is being perfectly accomplished. Our faith does not alter it. Our words do not alter it. Now, it's not a popular message. I can hear Kenneth Copeland groaning from here. Not only do people want to be the champions of their salvation story, they want to be the champions of their spiritual accomplishments as well. Sorry. Let's look again back to our text here on verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea. Now what's happening here? Are we talking about a literal mountain? Well, this is a figure of speech, right? We use it today. They used it back then. In fact, if we look to Jewish writing, if we look to the Talmud... Babylonian Talmud specifically, we find that particularly gifted rabbis who were, who were skilled at, at problem solving were often referred to as mountain movers. That's the context the disciples are hearing right now. That's what's likely in their minds. To move a mountain is to be someone who is capable of negotiating and reconciling difficult problems and difficult circumstances. Glory to God here, beloved. Do you see that we don't need the heresy of the prosperity gospel? We don't need to name it and claim it. Scripture gives us something far better. The faith of God. It's not on you. Well, look as our text continues. And does not doubt in his heart. Doubt what? 
What are you not to doubt? Your own faith? That's what the false teaching said, isn't it? They believe, they say, believe in the power of your words, right? Believe in the power of your faith. Don't doubt. Saints, that is mysticism cloaked in Christianity. What are we not to doubt? We are not to doubt God. We are not to doubt the faith of God, to perform and to act and to keep his promises, to go ahead of us, to enable us to walk in wisdom and trials. We do not doubt the ability of God to cast that mountain into the sea if it's necessary. Do we see the reorientation that is so very necessary here? And this is not unique to our modern day. Right? We recall from previous messages that Judaism had their own version of the prosperity gospel, didn't they? Right? If you were sick, you were cursed of God. If you were rich, you were blessed of God. It pervaded Judaism. So the disciples need reorientation themselves as well. Look at the last part of our verse 23 here. But believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. How critical is discernment when reading these texts? Does this mean if you can believe it, you can achieve it? Beloved, those are bumper stickers, not scripture. What does this mean? Well, let's wrap this into the next verse here because the same principle is going to run through them all. Look with me to verse 24. Verse 24. For this reason I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. All right, three things I want us to observe and to apply here. Now, this verse and arguably the others around it are one of the reasons why we do not pluck verses out of isolation and build a theology around it, right? Many have done so with verses such as this. God gives us the whole Bible with which to understand his word. So here, if we were to pull this verse out and stand it off by itself, we could come up with some pretty bad theology, couldn't we? Man, All things I ask for, if I really believe that I've received them, I'm going to get it? Cool. Unless I don't have enough faith, then I won't get it. That appears to be what this says when it's standing by itself. But we must exercise what is known as the analogy of Scripture, which simply means that Scripture interprets Scripture, that we interpret the unclear in light of the clear. It means that scripture does not contradict itself. If something appears to maybe say one thing, but somewhere else it spells out clearly another way, we can know that our other understanding was not correct. Does that make sense? And so it is here. We cannot build a theology out of a verse plucked out on its own. So let's exercise the analogy of scripture right here, right now. Reading this verse. While taking, for example, James 4, verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask to consume it on your own desires. Wait a minute. That alters one's faulty understanding of verse 24 immediately, doesn't it? For this reason I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. You ask and you do not receive because you ask to consume it on your own desires. So what are we talking about here? What are we talking about? Big picture. We're talking about prayer, right? That's what these last two verses are all about, prayer. 
And we have a whole host of commands and exhortation of, of instructions and admonishments in Scripture concerning prayer, do we not? Of course we do. We're told to pray in accordance with the will of God. I once heard it asked that if God were to answer every one of your prayers instantly right now, would God's kingdom grow or would your own? When we pray in accordance with the will of God as revealed in Scripture, you're going to get what you pray for. Charles Spurgeon famously said, quote, When your will becomes his will, you will have your will. That's verse 24 in a nutshell. When your will becomes his will, you will have your will. So that's the first thing I want us to see and apply. And secondly, I want us to observe the third item Jesus is addressing with the disciples. First, we had faith. Then we talked about words. And now we're talking about prayer. Which means our inquisitive mind is now going to ask, why is Jesus talking about prayer? What would prompt this? Right? No time or words are wasted with only days left until his death. And we saw in verse 24, Jesus begins talking about prayer. For this reason I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. These are specifics. These are instructions. These are practical matters of praying. And Jesus goes on in the same vein here, verse 25. Verse 25. And when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Now, what a remarkable statement on prayer. But as we read about a bunch of men who have spent the last three years with Jesus, honestly, this seems a bit rudimentary, doesn't it? It seems a bit basic. Why is Jesus giving practical instructions and lessons on prayer? It's odd on the surface of it until you consider what their life actually looked like for the last three years. Let me ask you something, beloved. If you spent three years walking, talking, sleeping under the stars with the Son of God, meaning he was always there to answer any questions, he was an ever-present help, he was always performing miracles and wonders, you could converse back and forth about the great truths of God, now consider this. That's your life. That's your day-to-day. -day. How would your prayer life be? God is already right there with you in human flesh. Would you have an insatiable desire, having walked and talked with Jesus all day, having the wisdom of God expounded and lavished upon you, would you feel it necessary to go and get alone for an hour with God in prayer? I bet you wouldn't. These men did not have occasion or cause to develop that rich and deep prayer life. They walked and talked with God all day long. But all that is about to change. How you relate to God, how you talk to him, is about to utterly change in a matter of days. We don't have to guess about the disciples' prayer life. Jesus tells us in John 16, 23 and 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Listen to this. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. 
They had no reason to. But ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. Meaning you need to start praying. Prayer is going to be your lifeline to me in only a few short days. And when you pray, pray according to my will. Pray not doubting that I will perform my will. Pray knowing that I'm working all things for your eternal good. Jesus demonstrated this beautifully in the Garden of Gethsemane, did he not? He poured out his heart unto God. He mourned under such anguish in prayer that he sweat blood. Pour out your heart unto God, yes. And then finish as our Lord finished. Not my will, but yours be done. And now you are praying as you should. Now you are praying in accordance with his will, with his glory as your primary driver, not our desires and lusts. That is the prayer that God says. Whenever you ask that in prayer, it's yours. Because I've already committed to accomplishing my will. And when you line up your will with my will, you will always have your will. But this point yet again, this points yet again to the same truth that's going to shock our modern sensitivities. Oh boy. What does this say about the power of our prayer? Here goes another sacred cow. I can hear it mooing now. Is there power in our prayer alone? Nope. None. It's as powerless as our faith and our words. Grab hold of this, beloved. Our faith, our words, and our prayer are merely the means and the mechanism by which we access the one who actually can move the mountains. Do we get that? Our faith, our words, our prayers by themselves are absolutely powerless. Say, wait a minute, brother. James says that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Yes, and they are. Why? Why? Because the vehicle of your prayer has driven you to the one who can accomplish all things. The vehicle itself isn't necessarily valuable. It is the one to whom it drove you to that is valuable and powerful. Do we realize how freeing this is, beloved? If it's not my faith that must perform, if it's not my words that contain any power, if even my prayer is only a vehicle to get me to the one with any power, it's all about him. Do we exercise the gift of faith? Yes. Do we speak the words of truth and love and encouragement? Yes. Do we pray and pray and pray? Yes and yes. But it is the faith of God that will perform, not ours. It is the word of God that made the heavens and the earth, that created all things, and that brought into existence all things, not ours. And it is not even our deepest groaning of prayer that contains power. It is the one to whom that deep prayer drove us that gives it power. Beloved, this is a distinction that is going to set some people free. The power was never ours to begin with. If we can get out of the way, if we can stop ascribing to ourselves what belongs to God alone, 
what is going to happen to our faith? What will happen to your prayer life? When the pressure isn't on our own faith, in our own words, in our own prayers to perform, but they are taking me to the one who I know will perform. Real faith can now rise up in truth. The false is out of the way. The impotence and the powerlessness is removed because I'm not looking to me, I'm looking to him. And that tenacious faith that roars like a lion that is born and bred in what? In the object of that faith. And that object is Jesus Christ. He will perform. What faith? What words? What prayer can now rise in absolute assurity and confidence when it's rightly placed? I'll tell you what happens. Mountains move. Prayers rise in truth. And we never doubt for a moment. Because beloved, he who has promised these things is faithful and true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we Allow this text to take hold in our hearts. Lord, we know that for many of us, this requires a reorientation of who you are and who we are. But Lord, we embrace the freedom that accompanies this text. Heavenly Father, as we prepare ourselves now to partake of your table, Lord, we ask that you would cause us to reflect. Lord, where we have been glory hogs or glory thieves, we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us. Lord, we're resting on your faith. We're resting on your creative word. And Lord, in that we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.